Welcome to Switchbacks, a travel podcast where we reflect on our year visiting all 59 U.S. national parks. Whether you're planning to visit your very first park or you bleed gray and green, we're here to share our insights on exploring, understanding, and loving America's best idea. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we're sharing our thoughts on the exclusivity of some national parks. We'll also chat about family-friendly national park adventures and answer a question about trail food. So happy almost Thanksgiving. Yeah, done with class for the week, done with work for the week. It's Tuesday night, so now we get to drive to our my parents in Louisville tomorrow. Yeah, it's going to be good. Spend a lot of time with with people that we love. It's going to be perfect compared to last year especially. Last year we were in Florida, <laughs> which can we just talk about Florida City as maybe one of the worst gateway cities? Well, it wasn't that bad. There was a really good 24-hour Starbucks. That was crucial. <laughs> we spent a lot of time there cuz there wasn't much to do. It was a weird time in the trip. It really was. We were kind of stuck with not a lot to do cuz we try as we might we couldn't make it to Biscayne National Park uh like like we the made keys it to the park. Yeah, yeah we made it to the keys <laughs> or we made it to the coast we, we explored to the, the coast of the park so and we we were flying out from from Florida to Virgin Islands so we kind of had to have this in between time where we spent a lot of time at Starbucks late yeah. into the night <laughs> and it was Thanksgiving so we gave ourselves a little break on Thanksgiving and where did we go? I, it was a good Thanksgiving hotel. meal. Well, not the hotel. I didn't oh. care about that. I was all oh. about Golden Corral Buffet. <laughs> I cared more about the bed. Yeah, they had such a crazy good spread. It was, I mean, all your regular... I repeat, I cared mostly <laughs> about the bed. <laughs> yeah, well, it was definitely one we'll remember for a while, and hopefully we won't be... <laughs> with just each other for company any Thanksgiving soon. Thanks, Cole. That makes me feel so special. (laughs) You betcha. Well, speaking of families, I thought we would do our parks in the news. And this time I read an article since we're, you know, since it's almost Thanksgiving and everyone's thinking about what they're going to do outside for Opt Outside, right, everybody? Um, I thought we would talk a little bit about a subject that we know virtually nothing about because we don't have any children. (laughs) And we didn't visit any national parks with kids. But basically, I found an article um, from Outside Magazine that talked about national, the best national park adventures you can have with kids. And I thought it was really interesting. And it was some of the stuff that we had talked about, you know, as we were doing some of these things like, oh, this would be so cool to bring your family with, um, along with, to do these different things. So anyway, there were 10 adventures that were the best. And I'm going to quiz Cole. By with a little fill in the blank questionnaire. So I'm gonna read the activity and then you're gonna read the park. All right, bring okay? it on. And these, some of these are not very hard. You should be able to get the most of. I'm only gonna do seven out of the ten because some of them were like day hiking in blank. You that those are hard. <laughs> yeah, impossible. So <laughs> here's the first one. Ready? Ten adventures to have with your kids in the national parks. Exploring ancient ruins in Mesa Verde. Yes. Floating the Green River in. Canyonlands. Yep. Paddling in the... Everglades? Yeah. Yep. Nice. Good job. 
Just try not to let them get eaten by an alligator. Yeah. Um, hiking to waterfalls in... Like, every national park has a waterfall. Hiking to the best waterfalls. Yosemite. Yep. Especially the Mist Trail. That one was a really cool one for kids. Um, backpacking the coast in... Hmm, it could be Redwoods, but I'll go with Olympic. Yep. I was surprised they put that. I think they had like eight and up would be good for that. Okay. But I thought that was a cool little backpacking trip. Yeah. Um, sea kayaking in? Channel Islands. Nope. Oh, Close. You're on such dang. a streak. We actually did this. Sea kayaking in? Glacier Bay. Glacier Bay. Yep, in Alaska. And then lastly, cross-country skiing in? This is kind of a tricky one. Hmm. Well, we crossed the country skied in Crater Lake, but... <clears throat> I wouldn't necessarily recommend yeah. that. <laughs> Especially for children. There's a huge drop-off like into the lake. Voyagers National Park. Nope, a good guess. Um, it's just Yellowstone. Oh, okay. Yellowstone is a really cool park to visit in the winter because they've got, like, it's all snowmobiles, and that's, like, the only way to get around. And they've got a lot of cool... Um, stuff like we talked to some people who said they always come to Yellowstone for Christmas because it's all just covered in snow and it's it's like a whole different park you get those crazy pictures with the bison with the icicles coming off their <laughs> their beards and then they're huffing and snuffing and the steam come or the you can see their breath in the air yeah it's good for everybody really yeah <laughs> well and mostly like all all parks are pretty fairly family friendly i would say like lots of good paved trails that are some some of them are easier some of them are you know medium for kids um a lot of campgrounds junior ranger program is amazing every single national park site has a junior ranger program um and as we were driving through some of these places some of the non-park nps sites like the national monuments and the national historic sites and things like that are really cool road trip stops too if you're on a longer extended family trip yeah, I'm trying to think if I would not bring my kids to any park in particular. Nothing's coming to mind. Some in Alaska, I would say. Well, so, yeah. So, like, Gaze the Arctic, Kobuk Valley, Lake Clark, yeah. Katmai. I guess there's nothing Maybe to do some there the except ones... be super rugged and... And look at bears. And backpacking in the wild. I'd be so nervous, I think. But anyway... Someday we'll maybe get to experience these things. But right now we just get to hang out with each other. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Cole. Yes. Are you ready to start our topic today? Yeah, let's hit it. So we are talking about, we're starting a new, actually, series or, I don't know. Theme. theme that's what we're calling it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one is about exclusivity in the parks, this topic for a this episode. The theme is National Park Challenges. So we're going to be talking about some things that the national parks have to deal with. So um, today we're talking about exclusivity. We're going to be talking about climate change. We're going to be talking about overcrowdedness. Some of those things are going to come up in the next few episodes. So stay tuned uh, for that. But today we're going to be talking about exclusivity. And what we mean is super hard to access parks that almost seem to repel visitors (laughs) by how expensive and remote and um, few facilities there are there. Now, we want to make sure we are aware that when we talk about this, it's we, we realize that the first priority of the parks is to preserve the natural elements. 
And that's always, you know, that's always what they're going to prioritize. Their second priority is to um, kind of entertain people and to, to make it visitor friendly. So keep that in mind as we're talking about this. Um, we're just going to be talking about maybe some things that the national parks could do to improve this issue and just kind of reach a wider demographic of people. Definitely. And the two parks we're going to look through the lens of are Dry Tortugas it's and Lake Clark National Park. Mm-hmm. So two extremely different parks, but face that exclusivity challenge. And Dry Tortugas is actually, if you haven't heard of it, don't be surprised. Or if you haven't heard of Lake Clark, these are two pretty rare parks. And before we start, I do want to say also that Almost all of the parks are super, super accessible, super cheap, yeah. super like, super um, family friendly, not but, remote, but not friendly. hard to access, inclusive of all visitors. So we're we're just kind of going deep into a couple of these parks just to look at the issues that they're facing. Yeah, and of course, when you have this beautiful landscape, it's it maybe inaccessible just because it's so far away from everything, which is what makes it incredible. Uh, But we're going to talk about how we think, you know, it's maybe being made a little more inaccessible than it should be or could be. Mm -hmm. So Dry Tortugas, the first park up, is actually 60 miles or so Mm -hmm. off Key West, straight west in the Gulf of Mexico. It's a little series of islands or islets, uh, you might say, because... I don't think I would ever say that. Okay. <laughs> well, they're they super small. Key? They're not called keys? Oh, shit. They are. Garden Key was the main one. Yeah, whatever. You're <laughs> testing my geography I'd now. call them keys, okay. guys. <laughs> so, basically, it's this place in the middle of the Gulf where everything gets really shallow all of a sudden, and... I don't know, there are a number of islands, maybe eight or so. That's a total guess. <laughs> but um, they they change a lot because the sand shifts and builds up in certain places and it gets taken away in other places. So some islands have completely disappeared, some have reemerged, some have joined together. But the main... Uh, so it was discovered way back in the... 17, 1800s, when people were trying to navigate through the Gulf to get to the New World. And the first person that saw it found that all of these turtles, these sea turtles, use these islands, uh, islets, keys, (laughs) as a nesting ground. So thus the tortugas, and there wasn't any fresh water anywhere on them because they're so small, thus the dry, dry Mm -hmm. tortugas. Um, and then, so they knew about this as kind of a hazard, just waiting to wreck ships in, in the middle of the Gulf. But in the mid-1800s, they thought it would be a great idea to build this fort in the middle of the Gulf and be basically the gatekeeper of the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so that's what the U.S., tried to do. They built this fort in the middle of the Gulf and basically boated over all of these bricks because it was a huge brick fort on the biggest key. And uh, 
unfortunately, it was right during the Civil War, and building was delayed because of that. But during the war, it was used as a prison. So that's really interesting. It actually had, I don't know, I think we heard like a thousand people at a time, you know, staying there because there were so many prisoners and soldiers. But they actually never finished the fort, and it is... It, it, it never w- actually became fully armed, so it was never right. actually used for its purpose of being a fort. Um, it, it was present in several wars, like the Civil War was used as prison, um, but it was never actually used like in, you know, in attack or in defense right. with weapons. Um, so basically, after it served its purpose, um, we thought it was important and it was saved as a national monument, the fort, Fort Jefferson which is the brick fort on this tiny little island. Um, In 1992, it became a national park, and it it extended to the rest of the islands and a lot of the the reef around, right? Yeah, just the the underwater ocean. Yeah, so that's kind of the brief history of Dry Tortugas. Super interesting place, super cool thing to um, hear all about. I think 95% or so of the park is ocean. Underwater. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, basically, they, they right when the Civil War ended. Since you cut my history lesson off, yeah, it was about time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but they realized that forts were pretty much obsolete, so right. that's that's why they stopped building these giant brick walls on this fort because it wasn't worth it anymore. So back to the more recent history of us and our trip. We visited Dry Tortugas in November of last year of 2015, and we were able to camp out on the island for two nights. So here's here's how we had to do that. There's only two ways, three ways, I guess, technically, of getting to the island. You can fly in a seaplane, which I we looked and it was about 500 bucks a person. Um, you can take your own boat, but there's a lot of restrictions and um, like things you have to go through to do that. Yeah, and so then, we left our boat in the car. <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> or you can hop on the ferry which is how most people visit it's a it's called yankee freedom and it runs every day and it's a giant ferry and it's super has a super like all-inclusive feel it's 175 dollars for a day trip for an adult it's 195 dollars if you want to camp which is what we did per person um so that's that was our situation we we had an awesome time and we're going to talk more about the ferry Yes, Yankee Freedom. You will. We will talk all about you in just a second. Um, but first, like to kind of wrap up what we did. We so we camped, which was amazing. Um, we were able to just kind of explore the Fort Jefferson, which is um, interesting, just because it's like not completed, and you can walk. You can walk up on top of it. You can walk through the through the buildings, through the little uh, rooms that used to be prison cells. Um, the tour guide from the boat gives you a history tour of the fort. We were able to swim on the beach, snorkel. The snorkeling was awesome. Relaxed a little, which was also awesome. No. We, were, nah. we brought our kayak for an extra 20 bucks, and we were able to um, kayak around the island. It was super windy, so we could only go out one morning, but we were able to kayak out, um, not all the way to our destination, but we kayaked out a little bit and then came back yeah just exploring we were head, the coast we were trying to head out to some to like a shipwreck right 
Yeah, well, I guess we couldn't find it. We ended up, right. like, not being able to find it. Because, because it's, like, it's under the water. <laughs> underwater somewhere. <laughs> Don't know where exactly. Yeah. It's, you know, middle of the ocean, so you kind of got to guess and check a little bit. Um, but, yeah, we didn't get all the way to Loggerhead Key, which right. is another key three miles or so away from the fort. Um, when we said we might want to paddle out there, the ranger kind of looked at us like, uh, you know, he showed us the, the wind report. Um, and it was crazy windy when we were there, and it just wasn't possible. Yeah. Um, but we had an awesome time, and I think our visit was pretty typical of, well, actually it was pretty atypical of people who visit the park. So just to give you an idea of <laughs> the type of people that visit the park, we saw we were with mostly older couples, I would say, and like European tourists mm-hmm. is, the, is the people that we saw almost 90% would fall into one of those categories. And then there were us who were grungy and (laughs) young, um, but we didn't see very many people that were, you know, similar to our situation. Like, on a budget, I guess. Yeah. And... I don't know. We, like you said, we loved it. We super recommend camping if you go because if you just do the day trip, again, $175 and you get there after a two and a half hour ferry ride at like 10.30 and then you leave at, I don't know, three. You get back, yeah, you get back by like five, 5.30 yeah, to Key so West. Yeah, so that's... It's a day trip. Yeah, it's four, just really short. Four and to five hours at the most. Um, yeah, so I would call this, I would really qualify this as one of our fanciest national park experiences. Um, sure. It had a very touristy, all-inclusive sort of vibe. Um, and unfortunately, it's the only way that it can be done. It's the only way you can visit. So that that's unfortunate because I remember like we were talking to um, some, of, some friends we made at Everglades right after we visited Dry Tortugas two younger kids who are who are going around connor and julian yeah taking a gap year right after high school yeah visiting um i think all of the national parks in the contiguous u.s um and they had to skip dry tortugas because it was too expensive and so i think about those people who are curious and like want to go but they can't you know um so this exclusivity and and it's caused because Yankee Freedom has an exclusive contract. They're the only uh, ferry that's allowed to take people out to the national park. And those exist for a lot of different reasons. Those exist to um, protect to protect the park from overcrowdedness. It cannot it cannot manage too many, like many more people. I know when we talked to the ranger, he said there used to be another concession company that would take people out. And they didn't provide as many services, like they didn't even have bathrooms on their boat or something, or they closed the bathrooms when the people were there. And anyway, it was just too much of a human impact on the infrastructure at the on the island. Right. So, uh, I guess our, our, you know, my my issue is isn't. I don't know. Elizabeth is really is a, is a little more. Uh, critical, I would say, than <laughs> I am because, you know, in business, getting my MBA, understand that companies have to make money, but... And, I just feel like... And, you know, it's, it's of course, their right to... I mean, I guess they won the contract so they can charge whatever they want if there's a demand, but... 
um, it, it does kind of go counter to, in our opinion, the NPS values of being accessible to the American public. And we think that it kind of limits the demographic of people that can afford to go to uh, the, th- that destination. Right. That's my problem is that I don't feel like the, the, the company reflected the values of the NPS you know, preserve and protect and protect the cultural resources and the historical resources and the natural resources. And I felt like when we were on the the trip, the experience was much more about the um, buffet and there was like a raffle and there were like, everyone was drinking on the boat on the way back. And it was just like, it was much more of a party atmosphere. It didn't seem as like focused on, you know, this is a national park and this is important and it's, you guys are lucky that you're, you know, visiting, and here's why it's significant. Yeah, it was a cruise, you know, it was a day Definitely. cruise. Yeah. And, and th- I, that just bothered me a lot. I felt like they were able to, because of this exclusive contract, they're really able to control the type of people that visit. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. It's not like they're we, we, evil. It's not like their intentions are bad. I just feel like they could do a better job. And one of the things I feel like they could do, which I think would be an excellent solution. <laughs> is, I agree. I like it a lot. Is have a one day a week or one day a month, um, bare bone, budget friendly, like shuttle to the park and that's it. So you know, they, I felt like their staff was super hardworking, but a lot of what they were doing was get, getting the food out, putting the food away at the buffet, um, you know, standing at the snorkels to hand out the snorkels. Yeah, <laughs> they had like a that. ton of staff, they probably had a, a like staff. 15 people. I don't know. And I, so I feel like if you cut, if you were able to one day a month or one day every two weeks or whatever, cut that down and just shuttle people out who really want to see the park, you don't have to, you know, pay for all the little unnecessary things in my mind that kind of make it seem more fun but don't really add a whole lot of value to the experience um especially for for how much you're paying so that that's my idea yankee freedom (laughs) yeah we we know you're listening Um, yeah i actually wrote a post about this too if you want to read it it's called the cost of exclusivity at dry tortugas yeah at at switchbackkids.com right plug plug um, yep. But it, we know the you know a ferry into the middle of the Gulf is going to cost a significant amount of money. But we, I think getting cutting out those costs, you know, even if you could just lower it, um, you know, fifty dollars to to one twenty five or so, mm-hmm. that to me that seems like a lot less of a barrier, especially right. if you're trying to go with a family. You know, mm-hmm. that would be an awesome family trip. Oh, so cool. Um, yeah, it's such a – there's even, like, this shy crocodile <clears throat> who swims around. He got washed up in, a in like, a hurricane, and he just kind of, like, circles around the island, and sometimes he's in the moat, and sometimes he's, like, beached out on the – we never saw him, but there's, like, one crocodile who hangs out. Yeah, that's crazy. He's so cool. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, it would be super interesting to to do that. And we know parks, of course, the park's main priority is always to preserve the... And Dry Tortugas is especially fragile. And so we know that parks are doing a good job. We just, with this certain case, we wish that their, you know, contractors would also reflect those values. Yeah, so let's move on to park number two. Yeah, Lake Clark. Lake Clark is different because it's not quite as fragile i guess or unique very rugged very rugged yes so if you can picture alaska it is on the part that kind of 
juts out into you know where those island chains go on that island chain goes on forever it's it's right at the base of where that comes the alaska peninsula i think yeah it's it's called yeah the the lake and pen region uh, or lake and peninsula region of alaska um so that's where this park is you know it's really not well it's not connected to any, any road system and you have to get there by a bush plane. Uh, you have to fly from Anchorage over a couple, like a mountain range and a couple of volcanoes. And then all of a sudden you see this huge lake start uh, running beneath you. And that is Lake Clark. Uh, so It looks like the Caribbean. It's so blue. It was so crazy clear, crazy turquoise colored. Yeah, all that meltwater. Beautiful. The, the flight was honestly... Like one of the best parts of the whole park, right? For sure, you get such a wide view, and we we flew over this like super long glacier. Do you remember what that glacier was called? No, but oh it was my gosh, awesome. So pretty. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the flight was awesome, and then we flew in. We we chose to fly into Port Allsworth, which is kind of um, it was just a little of a little village in the middle of the park, right along Lake Clark, um, and that was a good launching off point I thought for what we wanted there are a lot of other options you can t- a lot of people take day trips to go bear viewing in uh what is that silver what well, I'm gonna mess this up yeah that I don't know I don't remember salmon creek or silver creek or something I'll write it down in the show notes to not embarrass myself as much but um, there are also a lot of guided tours you can do in the backcountry. You can get dropped off um, in, throughout the backcountry, throughout the park. And do some fishing or hunting or something. Yeah, there's a there's a cool cabin that's actually a national monument, I believe, or national historic site. That and sounds that's, right. Yeah, and that's the, the Dick Pranicky cabin. Yeah, uh, very random because it's this guy who just decided to live completely isolated in the middle of the park for decades and he just made it his home super self-sufficient he would have visitors now and then from the park uh, the park rangers but he kind of became i think he was he was famous a little before that or did you know some important stuff i forget but (laughs) um he he became like the legend of of lake clark and lived well into the 80s or 90s mm-hmm. um, so anyway that's another popular spot but what we did again flew into lake uh, flew into Port Allsworth with Lake and Penair and decided to do three nights um, one right when we got there it was in the evening it was 11 o'clock at night yeah, I guess <laughs> I say evening because it was still it was super bright out. Super light out, yeah. Yeah, Alaska. But the, yeah, the Lake and Penn Air pilot, um, their family lives right there, runs the bed and breakfast right there. Super and sweet family. So and nice. Nice and family business. We knew, they knew, you know, they knew it was getting dark. They knew that we were planning on hiking three miles out um, to get to our new next backcountry area. And they said, you know what, why don't you just pitch your tent like right here on the runway? Um, so we just got found a little grassy spot next to this gravel runway. So it's not like a huge runway or anything. Yeah, um, it's a strip strip of gravel. It's yeah. a long strip. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were able to camp there one night, which made me feel a lot better since, you know, it was a new area and I knew there were bears around the area and <laughs> I didn't really want to hike in the dark necessarily. Um, so we did our first night there and then we hiked out 
to Lake Contrashibuna. 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 Yeah. Um, and we camped along there, which there are some, you know, they're not designated campsites, but they're some very obvious places where people have camped before. Yeah, which isn't there. necessarily clear if you're trying to do your own research on the park. Uh, basically, it just says hike you know, a few miles into the park and you can camp anywhere. Uh, but it turns out there are these really nice campsites in this smaller along this smaller lake and there was you know a fire ring and a bench and uh, there were actually canoes and stuff there so it's obvious that people mm-hmm. pass through at least all the time and the the canoes were super cool because you could just take one at least that's what yeah. we did yeah <laughs> and we, we always wrote when we were writing about it were we said free question mark <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because we're not sure that they are there was nothing saying that they were just for visitors but we used them because they were not locked and we returned them nicely <laughs> Um, so yeah, we just were able to canoe around the lake. It was perfect for sunset. It was so pretty for the sunset at whenever the sun set at like midnight or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, Co- uh, coughing fit. I'm a little, um, little yeah, got a cough. My my voice is super nice and deep. Got a nice, nice radio and, voice. Nice and manly. Um, so the other things we did, we did a lot of hiking. We were there for three nights, so two full days. Um, and we were able to hike to the Tenalian Falls, which it, you pass when you're hiking to the lake. Um, we will hiked around the lake a little bit, and then we also hiked my favorite, one of my favorite hikes. This this was really? a this was a good hike. This was such a pretty hike. Uh, maybe not one of my favorite favorites, but it was it was like compact. I like those type of hikes where it's like super hard, super steep, but you get to the views like instantly. So it was only about two and a half, three miles up to Tenalian Mountain, um, yeah, which is the 3, mountain. 3,000 or 38, I think it was like 3,800 feet elevation. Very, very, very steep. Um, we, yeah, we, you, it's the very pointy pyramid looking mountain that you can see through the, or from the town. And so you can see where you're going the whole time. Um, and the last, you know, half a mile maybe is all exposed and a little rockier and a little steeper, but it was... The trail was pretty well maintained, and it was easy to see where you were going. Once you got all the way up, you can see Lake Clark on one side. You can see Lake Contrashibuna on the other side. So pretty. And then all the bush planes, too, would be flying way below you, coming in and out of Port Allsworth, because that's obviously the only way anybody got supplies or people or anything into the the town. And it's a fairly big town. Yeah, there are also, we, we didn't talk about this, but there are lodges and things like that in the town if you want to stay somewhere not in a tent when you're in Port Allsworth. Yeah. Uh, we just chose to bring our tent and everything, of course. Um, but so we had a super good time. It was a nice park. It was We didn't see any bears. I was very worried about that. I was very disappointed by that. Yeah, I'm sure you were. Um, because it's it's supposed to be one of the healthiest bear populations that you can see in the national parks. You know, this is this is mostly centered around where they take the bear viewing day trips to. Mm-hmm. But so it makes our podcast today because it is pretty exclusive. You know, it's expensive to take this flight out. We, I think, well, I know we chartered, well, no, it's a regularly scheduled flight that Lake and Pen Air runs to Port Allsworth. So that's nice because you don't have to charter, which is much more expensive. Um, 
but still, you know, we're the only two people on the bush plane with the pilot, and yeah, that's just, like a lot of parks in Alaska, makes it expensive, hard to get to, not for the faint of heart, um, so, and of course, that's Alaska for you. you. Yeah, I feel like this is a park where there aren't too many other options, you know, I don't, I don't blame, yeah, definitely not. I don't blame the park for this one at all, because yeah. I, you know, it's just it's just so far away. There is not on the roads. There's literally it's not on the ocean. You can only well it is I guess part of it. You can boat to. Technically, I think part of the park is on the coast, but it's it's just so remote. Yeah, and so it, hard to access and so rugged. You have to really be prepared. So it can't. It almost like in that sense, it almost can't be for everybody um, because of this. You know, I think certain parts definitely can, but. You don't want to drop just anybody off in the wilderness. Yeah, that's <laughs> you know, true. without being prepared. I think everyone, with a, especially with a guide and and whatnot, would be able to have an awesome time. I just think it's a it's a park where, you know, it, it there aren't very many other solutions. But what I what I actually love about this park, just like you know, looking through the website and whatnot, um, they have a ton of education opportunities, and I think that's a good that's a good alternative to be able to bring people to the actual park <laughs> they're at least kind of bringing the park to people so they have on their website they have free lesson plans for teachers to go through um, things from you know the culture and the history of the area to even they do a bear study with um, talking about carrying capacity and wh- which bears survive and and things like that um, they also have all this whole site this whole page dedicated to interactive panoramic photos that you can zoom, you know, scan around and look through the park and there are video tours through the park. And I think stuff like that, just as a teacher, as a past teacher, um, I can really appreciate those things just because, you know, students, you want students to be curious about these places. And if you can share a little bit with them beyond just like a, you know, a two-dimensional picture. Or a blurb in a textbook. Exactly. Then they, they can really start caring about it. And that's kind of what the message, one of the messages that I wanted to drive home was that even though some of these parks are hard to access, they're exclusive, with all of this education, I think that if people far away care about these really hard-to-reach places, maybe that they'll you know, care more about the places around them in their own community. And so that, I think, can kind of be a benefit of this sort of challenge of exclusivity. Yeah, and I just remembered we both read a book called Lassoing the Sun, and it was a really cool book about this guy's um, soul-searching journey through the uh, a few national parks, and he really dived in deep to a couple. One of them was Dry Tortugas, and he talked a lot about climate change with that one and because when he talked to rangers and talked about issues facing the park, they basically said this is ground zero for climate change because these little tiny islands are so small, so low, um, that you know we don't know if in 50 years the park will be here. Mm-hmm. So especially with a, the <clears throat> fragile fort too, which is the main thing that they're protecting. Like if the fort is gone, if the fort deteriorates from you know from the rising sea levels, yeah, or the foundation gets washed it's, out, then it's yeah, it, it kind of it's a park that kind of can get can just disappear. 
It's but, crazy. But even if people can't visit these places, maybe if they see them and they learn about them and they experience them virtually, they can you know, start to connect and to care and to want to do something to preserve them. So, yeah, I, I love the idea of, I mean, I just love the idea of kids getting exposed to the parks. I think mm-hmm. that's super And sometimes important. you can't physically bring kids to the parks. But I think the parks do, you know, a lot of them do a great job on their websites on bringing the parks to into classrooms, and um, I think that's a good start, really good start. Of course, there's no experience like being in a park, but sometimes that's just not possible, and this is definitely a, a decent alternative. <laughs> um, so there is always this fine balance between... <clears throat> How do we, you know, how do we include as many visitors as possible, as you know, a wide or wide array of of visitors, but also protect and preserve the natural, cultural, historical features that make a park a park. There's always that fine line that we're kind of walking on, but I think with all this education and with this, you know, with challenging the national parks on these these things that maybe they could improve, I think that we can. Um, we can always work, the parks can always kind of work to improve that and work to reach new visitors. And then, excuse me, (laughs) and then there's also the, you know, talking point of park concessionaires. What are their responsibilities? We think that they should be an advocate for the values of the park service. You know, parks should be for everyone and everyone who... wants to visit should have the reasonable chance to do so. Um, and, you know, th- we talked about Yankee Freedom, not necessarily our f- favorite, um, but then we talked about a really great example in Lake and Pen Air and how they served the um, served the whole community of Port Allsworth and the, the park. Um, so we think a, a lot of also to end... Uh, enjoyment can be found right at home. So, you know, if you can't make it to these far out parks that are maybe a little more out of your budget and ours, if we were not doing this all 59 trip, right. um, find your park in your own backyard. That's always, always a good mess- message to end with. Mm-hmm. I like it. All right. So... We're going to do a quick listener question, and this one wasn't a specific question, but it is something that we've, um, that we have been asked quite a bit before, Um, and that's what kind of trail snacks are best? So what kind of trail snacks did we eat? What kind of, um, you know, things that did we just grab to bring while we're hiking or while we're out exploring the parks and we don't necessarily have time to make a meal? Um, so we had a lot of experience with this, <laughs> yeah. as you might have guessed. <laughs> For, first, though, I f- I'm surprised that people are so interested in what we eat because it came up a lot it during did. our trip. Yeah. Uh, so, I, but it's like a big yeah. part of your day. I mean, it's not guess... a big part of it's a big part of Cole's day because he eats so slow. <laughs> but it's it's a pretty significant part of everybody's day. <laughs> so when we started the trip, Elizabeth made a bunch of beef jerky, mm-hmm. and we. Th- thought that was going to be an awesome trail snack. Uh, I think we ended the trip a year later with probably at least half our jerky 
still in the bin. Well, um, that's because um, some of the airtight seals broke, and then we didn't want to eat them. Cole maybe did, but that's dangerous. And the one there, time there might I have ate, been just a little mold growing on them. It's disgusting. It's meat, Cole. You don't mess around <laughs> with that. And one time I ate it. I was in the Grand Canyon. I ate some some questionable jerky, and I. We were we were hiking. We were sleeping, and I had to get up and throw up in the middle of the night. And I was like, "What is happening here?" Um, but it was because I'm pretty positive. I nobody else ate the jerky except me. Everyone else ate what you know. We all ate all the rest of our food was the same, and so I'm pretty sure that was the culprit. And so I didn't want to eat any for the rest of the year. So anyway. Okay, Dr. Elizabeth. Anyway, jerky. It was really good. <laughs> I'd made a lot myself. I would suggest maybe buying some, which is fine too. Um, we had Gorp for this beginning of the trip too. Yeah, that's not With a great like trail snack though. It's, no, it's well, pretty heavy. Yeah, and it chocolatey. is heavy. But again, we thought we would be eating a ton of it, and just did not happen. Um, well, it's not too healthy. So we tried to, you know, we 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 learned really quickly that we can't, we could not eat like junk food for the whole year. Um, so we did try to, you we, know, keep we tried, it we tried, clean. We, <laughs> we tried. tried to eat junk food for the whole year a little bit, a little at first, and then we were like, oh, this is not gonna happen. So what we did on the trails, we usually had some sorts of source of protein and then some source of, you know, fruit or vegetable, and so jerky, summer sausage, um, hard cheeses, even if you're backpacking, some hard like parmesan and like or extra sharp cheddar. Yeah, that's not really. Yeah. A hard cheese. Well, we used it a lot. So. <laughs> I know, <laughs> but those last longer. So basically, like our our mentality was like the sharper the cheddar, the longer it lasted, which is kind of true. If you could knock somebody out with it, then it's good for the trail. <laughs> so yeah, cheese and things like nuts. I don't do too well with nuts. I don't. I don't love them too much. I um, love nuts. Yeah, that's good. So we didn't have too many of those. Um, Let's see. So fruits and Paleonola. Paleonola. Yeah. That was one of our gear sponsors. They gave us some some food. Um, it's a super good, healthy, healthy granola. granola. No no added sugar. It's sweetened with honey. It's got it's all just nuts and fruits and seeds, um, and that was that was a really good source of protein for our mornings that we didn't want to make eggs. Oh yeah, and just to grab for the trail, we always had like carrot sticks and grapes and apples clementines things like that that were just really easy to grab and and take with us if we were on the go we didn't do it well we did we did more towards the end of things like protein bars just because they were we were so tired of like using our brains to think of food (laughs) and so sometimes you grabbed some of those um what else is that it raisins yeah I, i couldn't think of half of this stuff so yeah, you're yeah. doing better than me. We sometimes did like if we were gonna if we wanted to have a full lunch when we were hiking instead of like a sandwich which might get squa- squished, we would do like a tortilla wrap with you know lettuce and turkey and cheese and and some mayo or whatever. We had we always stole a bunch of condiments from anywhere we went, so we were usually pretty stocked with like, you know, hotel um, continental breakfast yeah. like jellies and peanut butters and mustards and. Mayonnaises. Taco Bell mild sauce can go on anything. Oh yeah. Eggs, definitely. sandwiches. <laughs> um, I didn't and try it on salad, on. but I did. Okay. We d- we were yeah. at a dressing one time. Um, so yeah, so that kind of covers our trail snacks. 
If you guys have any other questions, we would love to answer them sometime. And this can be about anything from our, from what we eat to how often we got in arguments to, which was a lot, to what else? I don't know. You be creative. Yeah. <laughs> any questions that you guys have, traveling, national parks, whatever. Um, so yeah, I think that's going to wrap up this podcast. Thanks for checking us out today. We'll be back next week to talk about fleeting natural features and how parks are working to address the challenge of climate change. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd love for you to share us with a friend. Give us a rating on iTunes. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Switchback Kids, etc. Uh, and you can always get additional National Park videos, posts, guides, and more on our blog at switchbackkids.com. Switchbacks, Switchbacks out. out.